What can we learn from previous pandemics to apply to the current situation? What do we actually know to be true about the novel coronavirus? Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger, a physician scientist and investigator at the National Institute of Health, joins us to discuss his landmark work in sequencing the 1918 Spanish flu virus and to provide insights into the current novel coronavirus global pandemic. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Jeffrey Tauenberger, thank you so much for coming on. You've had a unique experience. You were involved in a project of sequencing the Spanish flu of 1918, which I think can offer us some very unique perspectives amidst the current pandemic. Now, could you maybe tell us a little bit about what you learned about the Spanish flu of 1918? It appears to be, in many ways, a different illness. It was perhaps much more deadly with 50 to 100 million people dying worldwide, and the the profile of patients who died were slightly different. We saw a peak in young, robust people, particularly soldiers in World War I, perhaps, which is different from the bimodal distribution we usually think of for flu deaths affecting uh, infants and, and elderly. So a lot of key differences. But could you tell us some of the things you, you learned, some of the takeaways, and how we can apply that to the current situation? Indeed. I mean, I think there's much that we can learn from 1918 to think about current and future pandemics. In terms of 1918, I, there are several, I think, high-level important things that have been learned after 20 years of, of studying the virus. The first is that the, the 1918 virus appears to be phylogenetically uh, very related to typical influenza viruses found in wild birds like ducks and geese and shorebirds. In this case, an H1N1 subtype virus with just some small key adaptations to the receptor binding region of hemagglutinin and some key changes in the polymerase that allow it to work well in mammalian cells. And so with a small number of adaptive changes, it became possible to host switch an avian-like virus to a virus that was so efficiently spread that almost every human on earth was exposed to the virus in 1918 and 1919. The, the thing that's, uh, several other things that are really interesting about that is that the extreme pathogenicity of the 1918 virus, as you've said, with, with so many fatal cases, seems to relate to an accident in a sense, in that the hemagglutinin gene is most responsible for the virulence that we observe, the direct viral-related virulence and that it, it's related to the fact that it's an H1 subtype hemagglutinin from birds. In birds, these viruses are not pathogenic in any way. By accident, it induces a very robust inflammatory response in, in mammals, not just in humans, but in experimental animal models, mice, ferrets, non-human primates, with a lot of uh, neutrophils in the lung that produce a lot of bystander damage, cell death, free radical oxygen production, and so on. We've learned that the evolutionary pressures, I think, that for host switch events, which is key to pandemics, that you start a zoonotic infection, so a virus from some other animal host switches host to humans, the virus is going to be under very strong selection pressure to want to figure out, speaking anthropomorphically, how to adapt to humans to replicate well within cells, but then how to be transmitted person to person. The issue of virulence or pathogenicity is something that I believe is not under uh, any kind of acute selection pressure at the time. In the case of the 1918 virus, almost everybody that died died with a secondary bacterial pneumonia at about 10 or 12 days after the onset of, of clinical disease. But the virus was probably only present 
for the first five to seven days. So people are dying of an initial primary influenza pneumonia followed by a secondary bacterial pneumonia and other consequences of, of that, but not of the original primary viral infection. So again, to think anthropomorphically, I'm not sure that there was a significant selection pressure on the virus uh, to, to not be as pathogenic as it was. I think a good example of that would be Ebola. Ebola is a virus that's also probably a fruit bat virus like current coronavirus in some sense, but uh, it doesn't, it's not in a sense trying to adapt to humans. It's a, humans are an accidental host. And so the, the extreme pathogenicity we're seeing is not something that relates to an adaptive response to its new host, but in a sense, an accidental pathogenicity. So in the case of the 1918 H1, uh, I think it's that certain bird influenza virus subtypes, not all of them, but just a small handful, tend to induce this very strong and over-robust inflammatory response. And I think it's the inflammatory response that was causing a lot of immunopathology that was key to the virulence of 1918 and could possibly be related to the unusual age uh, mortality that you described where people uh, 15 to 40 year olds had a, had a peak of mortality that's very unusual for influenza. But linking, linking this immunopathology that we can observe under the microscope with autopsies and with experimental animal models cannot prove the linkage to, to that very unique uh, age distribution. So that's still a, a mystery about 1918. Yeah, that's interesting. So is it also safe to say that a lot of the morbidity we're seeing with the uh, novel coronavirus is also associated with the immune, immune response and cascades of various cytokines and so forth? That does seem to be the case, uh, although more work, of course, needs to be done. You know, we're, this is a, a completely new virus and that no one has seen before. And so there's, there's much work that needs to be done. And of course, there's, there's a, a wide range of disease from um, uh, evidence of people who are, are exposed to the virus and infected and, and have little, little illness to obviously severe illness and death, uh, especially with people with underlying comorbidities. But for those people with more serious illness, it does look like that they are seeing uh, a very robust inflammatory response, like in severe influenza. And I think it's uh, possible by studying both these kinds of diseases and looking for similarities in those responses that it might be possible in the future to think of targeting uh, very carefully immune responses, immunomodulatory responses to ameliorate severe disease in these kind of infections. Now let's talk about just viruses in general. I think many of us have gotten a crash course. Perhaps if you watch the news or the media, you can't escape it. But they seem like relatively simple things, uh, DNA or RNA wrapped up in a protein coat or capsid with some surface receptors and maybe some enzymes inside to facilitate the uh, reproductive machinery, so to speak. But then if you think about it, if they have these receptors on the surface that can bind to uh, receptors in the body, you know, the angiotensin uh, converting enzyme 2 or various hemagglutins, that sounds pretty frightening that potentially any cell in your body or a, a lot of many cells can be infected. So let's just talk maybe about how do viruses, before they even get inside, how do they spread? And do different families of viruses spread in different ways? Does the flu virus influenza spread in a different way than uh, coronavirus, for example? Yes, those are uh, good questions. So uh, viruses indeed are tiny packages of genetic material encoded, as you said, either with RNA or DNA, usually in capsidated with proteins and sometimes with, a, with a, a, a lipid membrane and sometimes not. Viruses are not technically alive, 
uh, although they have genetic material and they clearly evolve, they require the taking over of a host cell to replicate. Everything has viruses. Bacteria have viruses, amoebas have viruses, plants, every animal. So there are an enormous number of viruses on Earth encoding an enormous amount of, of genetic diversity. And some viruses spread different ways. Influenza virus and the new coronavirus are in mammals uh, and in humans are respiratory viruses. So they are spread by small droplet and large droplet aerosol and contact spread with your, um, your face, uh, mouth and nose, and maybe your eyes. Uh, interestingly, influenza viruses in, in their native hosts, in, in wild birds like ducks and geese and seagulls and things, tend to be GI viruses and they're probably an oral fecal uh, spread. They, they, the virus is shed into the water uh, and, uh, and then uh, infection occurs through an oral fecal route. Of course, there are bloodborne viruses, uh, viruses that can be transmitted uh, through sexual contact and, and so on. Uh, GI viruses like the noroviruses, the quote-unquote cruise ship viruses, for example, or polio. So different viruses have adapted to different kinds of uh, infectivity. The key is that for a virus to be successful, it needs to be able to uh, stably infect the appropriate cell. So it needs uh, receptors to gain entry into the cell. Uh, and then it needs to have the machinery not to independently replicate, but to take over the cell's machinery to allow viruses to replicate. And then those new viruses need to bud out of that cell and then either infect additional cells within that host or more importantly, figure out how uh, those newly formed viruses are going to then get to another host, uh, whether that's re through the respiratory route or the GI route, etc. Any of us who have ever had the flu or a flu-like illness can certainly appreciate the fecal-oral uh, route of transmission and then the, just the characteristic illness with the fever chills and then which often follows the GI symptoms and the diarrhea and the vomiting and so forth. The coronavirus is related more to the common cold. Is that right? Which brings up you know several questions. How is it different, uh, for example, from the common cold? What would make it more severe? And then you know, it's almost cliche that we've been looking for a cure for the common cold for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years, and we haven't found it. So what, what makes us think that we're going to be able to get a handle on the coronavirus in a matter of months? Starting with the last question first, uh, at least for a minute, and then going back to the other questions, I, I think that it, it will be challenging, and I think it's worth discussing why I think that is in a minute. So I think that it will be challenging to, to, to make a vaccine. The novel coronavirus is part of a very large family of animal viruses. The, uh, the coronaviruses come in, in very different groups. So there are, are uh, at least uh, four large groups of coronaviruses. This virus is a beta coronavirus. It's related to some human cold-like viruses, but it's also more closely related to viruses that have been uh, causing uh, very severe illness in humans in the past. So back in 2003, there was a near pandemic of a very related virus, SARS, now SARS-1, and that these viruses, SARS-1 and SARS-2 and the MERS virus, uh, which uh, also has been a serious uh, zoonotic infection in humans uh, over the last 10 years, are all beta coronaviruses and can cause severe disease. You know, why one virus causes severe disease and another uh, less severe disease is not necessarily so simple. Some influenza viruses uh, are uh, quite mild and some are very pathogenic and it's not necessarily easy to just to look at their sequence or their receptor binding or any other 
feature of them to understand that and, and know that, of course, that disease is a dance in a sense, that it takes both the host and the virus to respond in that way. One virus can have a severe impact in one person and the identical, genetically identical virus may have a, a mild or self-limited uh, infection in another person. To take an example, seasonal influenza infects millions of people. And in the United States, on an average year, um, many tens of thousands of people die of influenza, which is terrible, and it makes it one of the major killers. But for the vast, vast majority of people who are infected with these seasonal flu viruses, they may be infected and just have a mild cold-like illness and not really even reflect that they're ill. They may have typical flu like you described with a high fever and muscle aches and cough and feel terrible uh, and have to go to bed for a week, but they recover. And then you have people who get severe illness and get a primary pneumonia and die. But the virus between those cases may be genetically or nearly genetically identical. And so it's not just the virus, it's some relationship between the host and the virus, the underlying diseases, comorbidities, or other things. In terms of these coronaviruses, it's clear that these beta coronaviruses, the SARS-like viruses, SARS-1, SARS-2, the MERS viruses, ultimately come from bats. Some of the other uh, cold virus, cold viruses that we've seen in, in uh, humans, alpha coronaviruses and things may have come from other sources, mammals in the past. There are a huge, huge number of coronaviruses. It's not clear how many there are, and we're finding more, but bats are probably the major reservoir of coronaviruses like wild of waterfowl or the major reservoir of influenza viruses. So um, back to the question of why I think it would be difficult to make a, a vaccine. Uh, for, for viruses that only infect cells along the uh, respiratory tract or, say, GI viruses like noroviruses that, that, that only infect cells along the GI tract, these are not systemically spreading viruses. There's no phase where the virus is in the blood, that is, there's no viremic phase. Um, uh, say, unlike measles uh, as a good example. And so one of the reasons that it's been so difficult to make good influenza vaccines and that we have to try to chase the evolution of flu virus every year uh, to keep up with it, to, to produce vaccines that are better matched for viruses that might circulate on a year-to-year -year basis, uh, is that these viruses only infect these uh, cells along your, uh, your nose and throat uh, and possibly down into your lungs. And I think that there's something that we're fundamentally missing about understanding memory immunity in the mucosal system rather than in systemic infection. Uh, measles is an example where um, if you have uh, one natural infection as a child or if you are vac successfully vaccinated as a child, you will have lifelong protective immunity. But that's not the case of influenza. And I think one of the reasons that you can continually be reinfected with cold-like viruses and flu-like viruses is this um, problem that uh, you can certainly mount a defense against these viruses uh, and clear your viral infection, but that does not necessarily translate into um, a really good memory recall response. So I think you can be continually reinfected. I think that's a challenge for this coronavirus. Now, one possibility is that, uh, at least in some people, like SARS-1, this virus 
maybe replicating systemically, at least transiently, may have a viremic phase. So if that's the case, it might be easier to make an effective vaccine. But if it is more like influenza, just limiting, limiting itself to the respiratory tract, I think it's going to be challenging. It's not to say impossible, but I, I think that uh, we need to learn um, how better to stimulate memory responses in, in respiratory mucosa for for better coronavirus, uh, influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, uh, other kinds of uh, respiratory viral vaccines. That's an incredibly interesting point. I think people may not realize that there are various uh, systems, for lack of a better word, of immunity in the way we fight off infections. So, of course, we have you know, not only the antibody response, which of course is the focus of vaccines, but of course cell-mediated immunity as well. And so is it fair to say, you know, the that we're putting all of our eggs in one basket looking for the vaccine and where we could be focusing on cell-mediated immunity? Right. I think that ideally what you want is is a vaccine strategy that would give you kind of a blended B cell and T cell response, because I think uh, that's really going to be crucial. I think that if the focus is just to develop an antibody response, even if it's a neutralizing antibody that's being produced, I think that may be inadequate for uh, what we're seeing with these respiratory-only viruses. And so uh, I think vaccines that are designed to elicit kind of a blended response are more likely to, uh, to, to, be, to be successful. Specifically, how do we go about developing a vaccine? You know, in the past, you would take an attenuated virus and then somehow inject that into the, the human uh, to elicit the immune response. But now we have, in this era of molecular medicine, we have a host of different ways to do things. So how, how do we actually go about developing these vaccines? Do we artificially manufacture sequences of RNA, culture uh, proteins, or artificially uh, grow proteins uh, to mimic the virus? How does, how does this work exactly? Well, the answer is all of the above. Of course, you know, you can find examples of vaccines that are very effective, that are whole virus vaccines, either that are just in, simply inactivated, like a formal and in, uh, in, inactivated viral vaccine, or are live attenuated vaccines in which you actually have an infective virus, it just that it has mutations in it that, or other genetic characteristics that have been engineered uh, that allow the virus to replicate, but without causing severe infection. And then of course, in the modern era, there's any number of ways to express viral antigens in viral-like particles, or as protein-only uh, vaccines, or as uh, pseudotype viruses in which you put the protein, say, of the coronavirus uh, onto another virus and ex expose the immune system to that. Uh, you can create nanoparticles. Um, so there's, there's any number of ways, of course, that people are now uh, working on methods to just deliver vaccines through expression of mRNA that would produce a viral protein in cells, in muscle cells, uh, at the site of, of the vaccination itself, uh, whether that will provide robust immunity is something that's still being evaluated. And in the case of something like this, of a, a novel and unexpected virus, the fact that there are probably 200 different uh, vaccine ideas being, being tried using all of these technologies is certainly worthwhile, and they should all be done at the same time uh, so that we can sort of see what seems to be working and what's not. It's very nice to think that with the huge advances that have been made in molecular biology, that we can make 
these kind of vaccines based on all the underlying principles that would work and rather than that this is sort of a stochastic process and the i think the unfortunate truth that the humbling truth is that biological systems are so complicated that there's still very little that we can do to predict in advance which kind of strategies will will likely work and so i think we really just have to empirically try a bunch of different things and see what kind of responses we're getting Okay, now let's talk about the state of the science. Now, what concerns me is, you know, it's very hard to separate the hype from the science, you know, not only just in the popular press, but unfortunately, even in the medical journals, because we, we certainly live in uh, very interesting times. Now, in the late 1800s, Robert Cook uh, developed what he called uh, Cook's Postulates, which was a way of, you know, it provided a framework for identifying the causative agent of a disease. It's fallen out of favor, perhaps, or it's just become antiquated because it doesn't account for things that we've learned, uh, specifically asymptomatic hosts and things that can't be cultured like viruses. But roughly it was identify a group of people with a characteristic illness, isolate the the presumptive causative organism, culture that organism, reintroduce it back into a host to verify that you can cause the disease. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was at least a framework, and which I think is really, you know, really the foundation of the scientific method. And so, his the postulates have been updated uh, in the in the last decade or so to incorporate new uh, molecular methods. Uh, you know, but specifically, can you talk about? the actual science where the coronavirus was first identified, presumably in patients from China, where a characteristic illness was identified and we, using a rigorous approach, identified that the coronavirus was in fact the cause of the disease. As far as is currently known, the the earliest cases that have been identified uh, were in Wuhan, China, possibly late November, certainly by early December of 2019. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that's important before we get into the, the specifics of the, the proving Koch's postulates is that, um, you know, one of the most important things, you can have the most sophisticated kind of molecular tests available, but what you need to have is sort of an astute physician uh, who sees a patient and thinks, hmm, this is an interesting and odd presentation of something. To, to think that there might be something new worthwhile investigating, or at least from an epidemiologic standpoint, not only to see a single patient, but to see some kind of population level experience that suggests that there's a new disease. In the winter, in temperate climes, you have a flu season every year that's variable in its severity. People uh, can develop flu-like illness and some can develop serious illness with pneumonia. So if, if, uh, if at a very low level, people begin to be infected with a novel virus that causes at least initial presentations to be somewhat overlapping with influenza clinically, uh, it's hard to raise suspicions that, that something's happening. And so I think the problem here is that cases may have been uh, happening uh, and circulating without clinical or epidemiological recognition for a while until enough cases happened to make somebody think that this was an unusual event. So in that case, they, they, they would look for the tests they have for known respiratory agents, influenza. They, have of course, have had outbreaks of avian influenza in, in China in the past, and they would be looking for things like that. And in this case, it became clear that they were dealing with a novel viral outbreak. 
Um, and of course, virus could be cultured from um, respiratory uh, uh, swab or, or nasal wash or throat swab material. Uh, that the complete genome of the virus was sequenced and put up in in public databases in early January, and so it's it's clear that that one can, you know, prove uh, infection all over the world now by doing tests looking for either culturing the virus, which is done rarely now, but or molecular based tests, mostly PCR based tests, that would amplify tiny tiny amounts of the RNA from the virus. Of course, these viruses can be used to infect uh, laboratory animal models. Uh, the problem is laboratory animal models are all different uh, species and they may not be infectable with the coronavirus like they are in humans. And if they are infectable, they may not show clinical courses that are similar to the range of human disease. Uh, it's been possible to infect uh, several different animal species experimentally with this virus, but none of them have really reflected the human disease. So while that it proves the postulate in the sense that this is a virus that is the causative agent of what we're now calling COVID-19, it's um, it's a little bit difficult because uh, ferrets or non-human primates or hamsters that are being infected with this virus or uh, knock-in mice that have the appropriate humanized receptor do not manifest, it, uh, manifest the disease in the same range that we see in humans. And so while it's in a sense a, a proof of the postulate, it's not that satisfactory if you want to study experimental pathogenesis and understand in animals what might be happening in humans. Large challenge indeed. So Jeffrey Taubenberger, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a most fruitful discussion. And before we wrap up, let's let's touch on diagnostic testing. That is, some, after all, somewhat of the focus of this podcast. And so once we've identified the virus as being the uh, presumptive causative agent of the disease, how do we go about developing uh, tests or assays to test the general public? For several months, the main thing we've heard about on TV, we have to test, 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 test. We've touched on this on previous features on the podcast that it's, it may not be quite that simple. So first, how do we go about developing a test, keeping in mind features or characteristic of a test, specifically sensitivity and specificity? How can we develop tests that specifically hone in on the virus so we know that we're measuring the right thing? We don't have false positives for whatever reason, including circulating DNA or RNA or junk RNA in your circulation. And then secondly, if we don't really appreciate the true prevalence of the disease in the general population, how can we come up with a, a meaningful testing strategy? Right. These are all very good questions that uh, unfortunately don't have simple answers. One can develop tests that are very sensitive and specific, uh, specifically molecular genetic-based tests, PCR-based strategies. But you have to keep in mind what you're trying to test for. So for example, as we've discussed, coronaviruses are a large family of viruses, and there's some very benign human cold-like viruses that are coronaviruses that have sequence similarity with the new uh, SARS-2 virus. And so one could design tests that would be very sensitive and specific to detect all of the coronaviruses, but you wouldn't be able to distinguish necessarily between a cold virus and this new virus. So that kind of test, uh, while interesting, isn't necessarily that useful to public health right now, where what we want to do is specifically say, uh, you know, who with influenza-like and coronavirus-like symptoms has this new virus? 
for contact tracing, isolation, etc. So you want uh, a very uh, virus-specific test. One of the concerns there would be if the virus is evolving or variable from patient to patient. And luckily for us, the evidence so far is that the virus, at least in this beginning of the pandemic, has, is pretty stable genetically. So in the case of influenza, that can be a bit challenging since it mutates so rapidly in humans and changes over the course of the months of just a single outbreak. And so tests have to be updated. But once you've designed a, a, a test that is shown to be specific for this particular genome, you can develop a, a very sensitive and specific test. Of course, the other problem is how to do the test. That is, where in the respiratory tract are people infected? That is, can you detect virus being shed in the nose or in the pharynx or only down in the lung? And so depending on how you do sampling, whether you're doing a, an oral swab or a nasal swab or or how, how that's being done, even with the most specific molecular test, you still may be missing it. You also know that, uh, that people shed virus for a certain amount of time. Uh, people certainly shed virus in an asymptomatic uh, way prior to the development of illness in the case of influenza, and there's good evidence of that for the coronavirus. Unless you are sampling people widely in the population, even those without symptoms, you're going to not detect those cases. And since there's a wide range of symptoms, sometimes uh, only the, the most severely ill people are coming to medical attention. So it is really a problem. Another issue that we now face after the pandemic has been spreading is not just the initial uh, diagnosis of, of, of rare cases and contact tracing of those infected, but that since we have widespread infection in the population, an important question now is to look at evidence of prior exposure through serologic testing of looking for antibodies. This is also a problem uh, in which you, you need to develop very specific tests that would be specific to this virus that don't cross-react with other coronaviruses. Uh, and then you have the further problem of interpreting what level of antibody and what kind of antibodies actually reflect not only infection, but actually some kind of immunity. And that's something that's still really an open question. In the case of influenza, uh, my colleagues and I recently at NIH have done uh, some, a small number of studies that are a little bit troubling in which you can observe patients who have influenza infections uh, and that mount immune responses, clear their virus and mount immune responses, their serum antibody titers against the virus go up. And you can take those young, healthy people and approximately one year later can reinfect them with the identical, genetically identical virus, and the majority of those patients are able to be reinfected. So uh, the fact that they have antibodies in their serum, the fact that they were cleared of their infection, doesn't necessarily mean that they are now completely immune from the virus. And this goes back to the discussions we've had about why I think it's going to be uh, challenging to make a protected vaccine. But uh, I think these are questions that that we, in general, in, in the global public health, need to be rapidly uh, uh, developing and trying to evaluate how can we best figure out uh, how to make judgments as to when stay-at-home orders and, uh, and uh, social distancing and disruptions that we've had to try to limit the spread of the virus, uh, what kind of measures can we use to, uh, to allow that to, um, to be relaxed? And I think at this stage, the answer is that we just don't know. 
uh, and a lot more work and very rapid work is going to be necessary. Indeed. Well, Dr. Talberger, how can folks learn more about you and the work you're doing at the NIH and any other resources that you might think would be useful? Right. Well, I'm in the intramural program of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH. Uh, our laboratory has a website. If if you search on my last name, Taubenberger, and NIH, um, you'll probably get that. You can look at publications that we, we do in our coronavirus and influenza virus in PubMed or other public uh, uh, databases. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Taubenberger, thank you so much. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.